Well, good morning, everyone. It is good to see you all. It's been too long, but it's great to see your faces. You just keep getting better looking all the time. I want you to know that, even during a pandemic. Um, great to see you, and uh, good to see all of you, I guess, sort of see you online watching. And those of you from Brighton and Grazeal, thank you for joining us today. We're in the middle of a series called Wide Awake, and here's the premise behind the series. Uh, we just came through a crazy year, right? And all God's people said, amen. So we're hoping to move into this brand new year completely engaged, wide awake, not licking our wounds from the last year, although we could, but fully engaged, as I mentioned, and alert. What is God doing? How is he using all of this mess that we've just been through on so many fronts? So being wide awake, part of being wide awake means we're listening to God. We're tuning into his voice. We're hearing the promptings that he gives us from day to day to day. All of us want that life, I think, that we want to be hearing from the Spirit of God. But so often, when we get scared during a pandemic, we're not hearing too much, except for maybe the 24-7 news cycle, right? So if nothing else, last year was a year of distraction. Am I safe to say that today? We had a pandemic. My goodness gracious. For some of you, it was the first pandemic you've ever been through. Uh, we had protests, uh, pay cuts, polarization all across the country, politics, and panic attacks. Does that not summarize 2020? A lot of P's there, okay? Now, I'm not a neuroscientist, but here's what I know about our brains. When we are scared, and scared was the right word to use for so many, for so many reasons this last year, our amygdala inside of our brain kicks in. It's in our lower brain. It's a small membrane the size of an almond, but it's that fight-or-flight thing going on. We need the amygdala because we need to be alert when there is danger. But when the amygdala is overworking, you're not thinking rationally. You're thinking emotionally. So am I. And when I'm an emotional creature, I may not be making sound decisions. So when the amygdala is, is overworked, as I just said, I'm not at my best version. But listen, I would say when I'm living completely at ease and comfortable, I'm not at my best either. I need the amygdala to be kicked in to make me alert to become the best version of myself. But if I'm just so comfortable and at ease, I'm not at my best either. In fact, psychologists tell us we need stressors to be at our best. But chronic stressors are bad. Does that make sense to you? So how do we come out of this crazy year with just enough of a stress level that we go, I'm alert, I'm ready to go. Speak to me, Lord, you know, that sort of thing, and, and not be at ease. So let me illustrate what I'm talking about. It was April 14th, 1912, when that great vessel, the Titanic, was moving across the icy waters of the North Atlantic Ocean. Remember this big ship? At the time, it was the largest, largest ship ever built. And it was supposed to be invincible. You know the story. Even the captain stood on the deck of that ship right before the launch and said, even God can't sink this ship, okay? Not a good thing to say right before you take off. But as that ship is moving across the Atlantic, there were icebergs, obviously. Did you know that the Titanic received five explicit iceberg warnings that night. No one paid much attention. After all, we're invincible. And when the sixth and final warning came in in the wee hours of the morning, April 15th, 1912, the telegraph operator wired back four simple words. Shut up, I'm busy. Last words he ever spoke over the telegraph. 
30 minutes later, the ship had hit and was going down, and 1,500 people lost their lives unnecessarily. Now, the only reason I share that story with you is there were extremes on that ship. On the one hand, they were comfortable, feeling at ease, we're invincible, we're having a party, and then the next minute, the amygdala is overworking, and it just didn't make for a good combination. And while I don't mean to overspeak here, I'm wondering if this whole messy year we just went through were either too comfortable sitting at home, right? We were quarantined for 10 months. Or we're overworking because we're scrolling through that phone and there are, there's clickbait coming at us all the time. Did you find that too? And then there's this 24-7 news cycle. And we're watching the news not 30 minutes a day, but nine hours a day. Neither make for a great combo. So... Here's the premise. As we move into this brand new year, how do we learn to be alert enough that we're listening to God's voice and following the promptings He gives us, but yet not so stressed out that we're missing everything because we're just scared that we don't have enough hand sanitizer, okay? Are you with me? Okay, so having said that, what I'd like to do this morning is I want to look at some Scripture that's a case study for what not to do and what to do when uh, disruption happens, okay? So if you brought your Bibles, you don't have to, but if you brought your Bibles, we're going to look at 2 Kings chapter 3. There's a great story in the beginning of this chapter that I think it's a case study for us today, okay? So let me set up the story, and then we're going to read a few verses. In this chapter, we meet the new king of Israel and the king of Moab. So the Moabites and the Israelites, okay? The kings prior to these two were allies. They were friends. Importing, exporting, they were friends. They were helping each other. These two new kings, not so much. And due to an import-export deal, uh, they, they got so at odds that they decided they're going to need to fight a war. So times have not changed, right? So uh, because the Moabites had a much larger army than Israel did, the king of Israel grabs two trusted allies, the king of Judah and the king of Edom, and says, would you join me in my battle against the Moabites? And then he basically said, I think the best, off excuse me, the best defense is a good offense. Let's attack them first before they attack us. So, as the chapter unfolds, these three kings and their armies and their cattle and their swords and their shields all are this big entourage moving across the desert to get to, um, to Moab. Seven days into the journey across this desert, they run out of water. Now, running out of water is never good, right? We need it. But especially in a desert, this is really bad news. Well, the amygdala's kicking in. In fact, it's so funny. If you read the, the text, read the whole chapter later. But verse 10, the king of Israel, the one that started this whole thing, says, Ah, forget the whole thing. Alas, God has brought us out here to kill us. Have you ever noticed when we're just scared, we're on this mission that we think we're called to, and suddenly, forget the whole thing, we're going to die. We're going to die. Did you not hear this this last year? Okay. Thankfully, one of his fellow kings said, no, wait, 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 wait. There's a prophet in the land. His name is Elisha. Elisha hears from God. Let's go talk to Elisha, see if he can pray for us, and we can get some water. We're, we're going to talk to Elisha and get some water. So they march another direction, down south to Judah, and they meet with Elisha, this prophet. And after interacting quite a bit, Elisha goes back into his chamber, worships, prays, and comes out with a response. And I want you to read his response, okay? So, Second uh, Kings chapter 3, here's what happens. This is Elisha speaking. Elisha says, this is what the Lord says. 
I will fill this valley with pools of water. For this is what the Lord says, you'll see neither wind nor rain. By the way, meaning I don't even need to drum up a storm to make this happen. You'll see neither wind nor rain, and yet this valley will be filled with water, and you and your cattle and your other animals will drink. Stop. Let me make a comment. God's basically saying, you're praying for water, I'm going to answer in abundance. I'm going to give you more water than you even need. I'm going to answer lavishly for what you asked me for. But he goes on and says, but you asked for the wrong thing. Look what he says next. And yet, this is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. He will also deliver Moab <laughs> into your hands. Oh, right, 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 right. We're supposed to be fighting a war. Does this ever happen to you? You're on a very important mission. You're doing a project. You're doing something you really feel like you're called to do. You're gifted to do. And halfway across, there's a little disruption. Maybe it's a big disruption. Maybe it's a pandemic. And suddenly, all bets are off. Our amygdala's kicking in. Fight or flight. In fact, isn't it interesting? They're asking for the water. They're not praying about the... Now, would you not agree with me? Had they prayed about the bigger picture, the war they were supposed to be winning, the water would have taken care of itself. Because you're going to have to be alive, I'll get you water. Finish this verse for me. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I'll get you all that you need. I made you. I know what you need. Don't you think our Heavenly Father might be saying that just a few times to us this last year? So, I think there's a few lessons we can learn from these kings. I want you to learn them with me real quick. Just some observations, okay? So, here they are. Uh, I'm sorry. Let me make this overarching statement before we get to the lessons. They prayed for the water, not the war. Being caught up in the immediate they miss the ultimate. That's really the premise on which I want to talk to you today. We as a people, human beings, not just Americans, human beings, tend to get caught up in what's right in front of us. And instead of saying, God, somehow you must be using this pandemic. You must be using these protests. You must be using all of this sour economy thing to awake us up. Instead, we're praying, God, <laughs> toilet paper. I need toilet paper. Come on, didn't we have a run on toilet paper? You went, what are we going? What are we doing this for? And just like we made a run on the bank in 1929 that sent us into a Great Depression, we're so caught up, we need more toilet paper because we're not... Well, folks, I'm just saying, we're not going to use any more toilet paper now than we used before the pandemic. Well, yeah, but I'm staying home. I'm not going to work. Well, that's right, so we use less at work. You'll have more for home. The supermarkets are going to be fine. Don't make a run on it. We're all going to be fine. But we panic. Our amygdala takes over, and we pray for the wrong thing. And we do the wrong thing because we're in survival mode, not mission mode. So, with that said, let's look at these lessons real quick, okay? Uh, <laughs> All right, here we go. Having spent little time with God, th did you notice that having spent little time with God, they needed to consult with someone else who did? I just happened to notice when I read the text, isn't it interesting, these are three kings, and by the way, these are God's people, the king of Judah, the king of Israel, these are the chosen people of God. They supposedly have a pretty good theology, at least they should. When they get out in the middle of the, the desert, they have a great need, instead of saying, oh, fellas, we ran out of water, let's get on our knees, let's begin to seek God, they go, hmm, we ran out of water. Do you know anybody that's close to God? Oh, Elisha, let's call Elisha. Can I just ask you something? Are you prone when you get into a really big pickle to say, 
Oh, I have a great need. I'm going to call Nancy. She's a prayer warrior. I'm going to call Nancy. Now, nothing wrong with calling Nancy, getting Nancy to pray, but is Nancy a substitute for your own intimacy with God? I'm asking. Or are you willing to say, Nancy, join me. I'm on my knees right now. I'm getting closer to the Lord Jesus right now because I know I've got to. I dare not do this on my own. Interesting. So, having spent little time with God, they needed to consult with someone else who did. Look at number two. Having no intimacy with God, they settled for echoes of God's voice instead of hearing it. Let me tell you what I mean by echoes. Very, very often, it's easy to get lazy in our spiritual journey. And because we live in a day of information where you can get podcasts and sermon series and video series and TED Talks and you name it, there's plenty of information. And a lot of it's good. We can get satisfied with echoes. You come on Sunday and hear Pastor Brad often, okay? I think I can speak for him, and I, and, and I think he would say, come and hear me, thank you. In fact, I hope you enjoy today. But never let me substitute for you hearing straight from God. Don't let me be the echo that you become satisfied with. Do you follow what I'm saying? May this prompt you to have your own deeper walk with God. And don't get satisfied. I think right now we have a lot of echoes and a lot of echo chambers, don't we? <laughs> the answer is yes. Okay, good. All right, number three. Having little experience with God, they were distracted by scarcity. They were thinking things are running out. Anxiety, clutter, and noise. Anxiety, scarcity, clutter, and noise. And again, this is our day where we're preoccupied with logical things like hand sanitizer and, 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 and soap and, and toilet paper and wipes and everything else, and I totally get that. But it's an indicator when we're preoccupied with those that we've just gotten preoccupied with the immediate, not the ultimate. I was certain in March when we entered this thing, our Lord, while I don't think he caused the pandemic, is going to use this thing. He always uses big stuff like this. For, and we'll look back in 15 years and go, oh, my gosh, did, did Jesus use that? But right now, how you doing? Are you allies with him? Or are you begging some Nancy or Elisha just to help you through the day? I know I'm being harsh on you right now, but what's your state of mind? And then, of course, the last one, which I'm alluding to right now, is simply this. Number four, having no history with God, they failed to think like God thinks. They prayed for the water, not the war. They were caught up in the immediate, not the ultimate. Now, I realize we all need a report card from time to time, so let me just, let me just ask a question. When I think about my relationship with God over the last 10 months since this whole thing started, and I want to enter 2021 wide awake, one report card I need to be asking is, is, is simply this. Where does my thought life go in times like this? Where do my behaviors and attitudes go? Where does my prayer life go? There's nothing wrong with praying for water. God asks us to pray for all the little things. Thank God he's allowing us to pray for little things in our life. But would that be 85 to 90% of your prayer life? Just personal blessings, personal safety, Again, not bad, not ultimate. Is God need to look to someone else to join him in his greater purposes for this world because you're into just making it through the day? It's awfully quiet in here. Okay, so let me give you an analogy. Um, when I was a teenager, our family moved from Cincinnati, Ohio to Southern California. I spent the rest, well, a great deal of the rest of my life in San Diego, California. Great place. 
But it was the 1970s, and I began to fall in love with UCLA basketball team. Coach John Wooden. You know John Wooden? John Wooden was a legendary basketball coach, coached the UCLA Bruins to championship after championship after championship. In fact, to this day, he owns more back-to-back-to-back championships in NCAA basketball history than anybody else, men or women. So I began to to watch him closely and study him. And since his life, in fact, I got to meet him. It was so much fun. But later, I've studied what he did to be so successful. And here's what I found. There's a great analogy for you and I in our walk with God. So when the freshman players would come in out of high school to UCLA, he would sit them all down and he would have a talk. In fact, several talks. He began to teach them the precepts of what he believed about playing the game of basketball. Okay? It's almost like, gentlemen, this is a basketball, okay? But I mean, he got detailed. There were precepts about how to put your socks on before a game, how to put your shoes on so you don't get a blister, how to take a shower, literally how to take a shower. And by the way, no beards because I don't want you going outside with a wet beard and catching a cold after the game. So shave your beard. Just little things. And, and at fr- of course, the freshmen who are all studs are going, what are you talking about? But they bought into the wooden way and they won championship after championship after championship. So after he got through all the fundamentals, and by the way, he taught them the fundamentals and said, if you'll learn these, we won't even need to study the opposition. And they never, he never studied the, op- the opposing team. It was just get these things down, you'll win. But apart from those precepts, he would also teach them how to hear his voice in the middle of the game. He would roll up his program. You know how you always get a program at the basketball arena? He'd roll up the program and use it kind of like a megaphone, and he'd talk to his players through the program. He was called a practice coach because he not only did that during the game, he'd actually roll up the program when he could be screaming to his heart's content with no program at practice. In fact, he eventually brought in students from the UCLA student body and had them make a bunch of noise so the players could learn to distinguish his voice from the noise. Anybody see where I'm going with this right now? So here are the precepts. This is the general stuff you're going to need to know to do life well. Okay, it'll make your life better and make you better at life. But apart from this, on Tuesday, you might need a little personal nudge from the Holy Spirit that's not a verse of Scripture. It will align with Scripture, but it'll be just a little nudge that the Holy Spirit says, you need to go talk to your neighbor right now. They're struggling. How do you know they're Because I'm God. Okay. Or you need to make that charitable donation to that charity over there. They're needing help. And you feel that little nudge. And you can say, oh, that was just me. That's just me. It's just the pizza I had last night. Or you can say, maybe this is the rolled-up program. And God's saying, do this, do that. Again, it completely aligns with the written word, the logos, but it's rhema. It's the spoken word. It's the prompting of God. Now, it may not be an audible voice, and it may not be strings of sentences, but you know what I'm talking about, don't you? Haven't you ever felt that little potent thought, I think that might be God, and it kind of scares you at first because you go, oh my gosh, I'm about to have to do something I wouldn't ordinarily do logically. So wouldn't it be neat if we went through this year and we really learned to live this way? And God's got his rolled-up program, and we're listening to him all day long every day. So with that said, here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to close today with some observations on hearing God's voice, okay? And again, I don't want to freak you out if this sounds really weird or whatever. I'm just saying it may be audible, who knows, but it might just be that guiding of your thinking where you, you get a thought in your head and you know, that was not my thought. That was better than my thought. That had to be, that had to be the Lord. 
and it's a normal occurrence. Not daily, maybe, but regular. It's common, it's normal, because you and God are walking together arm in arm. So let's look at these. Five principles, here we go. The first principle is what I simply call the phone call principle. This is where we need to begin the conversation on hearing God's voice. Here's the foundation. We don't lose intimacy with someone when we stop talking to them, but when we stop listening to them. Can I say it again? We don't lose intimacy with someone when we stop talking to them, but when we stop listening to them. So let's just take a marriage for a minute. Many of you here, not all, but many of you are married. You understand good days and bad days in marriage. Would everybody agree with that? Okay. Isn't it true I can yak at my wife all day long? Honey, can you, get, can you make sure and pick up the laundry? Can you make a, you know, or the dry cleaning? Can you make sure and feed Sadie? She needs to be fed right now. You know, da, 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 da. And often it's requests, just like our prayer life. I've just got my grocery list here. That doesn't necessarily create. It's good to communicate. I'm for communication. But just that kind of talk can be hours worth each day and not produce intimacy with that spouse. But when I stop and I'm quiet, and I'm intently listening to her at the kitchen counter as she shares her day. Now we're building intimacy. Wives in the room, am I right about this? Okay, it's awfully quiet in here, okay? have no idea what you're talking about. I'm just saying hearing is an act of the ear. It's a physical thing. Listening is an act of the will. It's an internal thing. And when I choose with God to tune in, and my prayer life is half talking, but the other half, I'm still and quiet, and I'm in solitude, and I've gotten away from the noise and the clutter of the family, maybe, but I'm just taking some time and I'm saying, Lord, speak to me. You'll be amazed at what that habit will do to the nudges you get. Let's do another one. The second principle is what I call the axe head principle. Now, I'll explain axe head in just a minute, but here's the statement I want you to get. The more I practice what he's last told me, what he's already told me, the clearer his voice becomes in the future. So in order to get more instruction, i got to make sure that I'm up to speed. I'm caught up on my current obedience to God. Now let me tell you where Axe Head comes from. This is actually from the same book we just read from, 2 Kings. The prophet Elisha has some friends come to him, and they say, as we were chopping down trees, our axe fell into the water, and the axe handle got separated from the axe head. The handle floated, the axe head went straight to the bottom of the water, and now we can't get it. Can you help us get it? They went to the prophet Elijah, I guess, for all kinds of things. So Elisha's words were very simple, and they make sense, but I think we need to apply it to our obedience to God. He says, the first thing I want you to do is go to the place where the axe head fell in. And at that point, God makes the axe head float. It's kind of cool. But here's what I want you to get. When you're seeking God, you're saying, God, I need to hear from you. I need to hear from you. I think he might say to you, back to you is, what he'd say is, did you follow the last bit of instruction I gave you? forgive your sister or talk to that neighbor or whatever, I, I'll just speak for me. I don't know if I should impose this on you, but I have found when I'm up to speed on obeying the last thing I understood to do, I'm certainly not perfect and there may be things I'm missing, but all that I consciously knew I was obeying, that's when I'm so hearing the new prompting. I'll give an illustration. It was exactly 40 years ago this year, 1981, when I learned this axe head principle. I was a college student, it was my junior year, and I was in my dorm room at the residence hall, and I had some time alone. My roommate was out of town. 
And I had not been feeling especially close to God at that particular time. I was a follower of Christ, but it was just kind of a, I was just going through the routines. And so I thought I would spend some time with God. I had my Bible open. I had a tablet and a pen. And I was just thinking through, how can I make sure that I'm doing everything I know to do? And so I basically did a checklist. Have I obeyed the last instructions I got from him? And by the way, one item that night was, you need to forgive a doormate that was about three doors down that I had had a little scuffle with. Uh, another, well, there were, I'm, not, I'm going to go into it. There were three or four things that I needed to make sure that I did. But that night when I went to bed quite late, I knew that I had a clean slate, that, that while I wasn't perfect, I was up to speed on doing everything I knew to do as a human being. Little did I know how that clarity would foster more clarity. When I woke up the next morning, I woke up, and before I got ready for class, I thought I'd stumble over to my desk and spend a little time with God before I got my day started. I opened up a Bible, and I started reading. And as I was reading, I saw a picture in my brain that had nothing to do with what I was reading. At that particular day, and it was a little bit strange for me. I'd like to tell you this happens every day. It doesn't happen every day. But I saw a picture of our president, the United States president, getting shot with a gun. And if you remember, at that time, President Ronald Reagan had just been sworn in as the president two months earlier. And I watched him getting shot. And I watched the whole thing play out. It was like a video. I now realize it was a vision. And I watched the whole thing play out where he was shot and rushed to the hospital, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. My first thought, because I'm a normal human being, was, oh my gosh, I hope that doesn't happen today. And then I realized this was not just my random thinking. God was prompting me to pray. And so I remember just praying, oh, God, please, whatever it takes, keep him safe. Keep our leaders safe. Make, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I prayed for quite a few, 15, 20 minutes. Well, later that day, you probably know how this story ends. Later that day, I'm in my car driving around. I turn the radio on, and sure enough, that was the very day that John Hinckley shot President Reagan. Some of you remember this day, don't you? And uh, they rushed him to the hospital. What played out as I heard the radio report was exactly what I saw in my head that day. Now, as I look back, I think to myself, God probably rounded up thousands of people that were tuned in. I just happened to be tuned in that he got enough prayer cover. I really believe in the power of prayer. And, and it all worked out well. But here's what I'm saying to you. My lesson learned was I had to be ready. I had, to, I had to make sure my slate was clear and I was ready to go and I had obeyed what the last instructions were so I was ready for more instructions. How are you doing there? Has God prompted you last year to do something, forgive someone, let go of something, quit a job, start a job? I don't know. But make sure that you can say, as much as I can tell, I've done it. Enough said. The next principle is what we're going to call the headlight principle. And it's kind of a second cousin to the last one. The last one was, have you kept up with your, you know, your obedience, okay? And, and, and you get more. This one's really a posture of the heart. It's about where your heart is. Here's the point. As I commit to obey what I know, my risk-taking, that's commitment. I actually take a risk. I don't just think good thoughts. I do good things. My risk-taking leads to more revelation. So here's what I'm talking about here. I tend to know what he wants me to do and listen and hear his promptings when I enter my relationship with him that day saying, God, whatever it is you want me to do, I'm already committed to doing it, even before I know it. 
Now, that's hard, isn't it? In America, aren't we just the opposite? Lord, get, get, give it to me, explain it all to me, then I'll let you know if I want to do it or not. I mean, doesn't that make logical sense? Just explain it all, then I'll say, yeah, that, that, but not that. And God says, you know what? That's not how I work. You've learned enough about me. This is the Lord. You've learned enough about my nature. I am a good God. I love you. I have your best interest in mind. And by the way, I made you. If you'll trust me, I'll lead you. But it means you enter in a posture of surrender. Is that okay to say here? We don't like the word submission or surrender these days. Are you willing to enter this with surrender and submission and then trust by your actions that I'm okay? Now, I'm actually giving you scripture. Did you know that? In John chapter 7, the Gospel of John chapter 7, Jesus is being debated and questioned by the religious leaders. And they're all wondering if he's really from God or not. Is this guy really from God or not? He's a little wacko. And Jesus says this in John 7, 17. He says, if anyone is willing to do my teaching, then he will know whether it's of God or not. Now, that's just the opposite. Yeah, yeah, obedience comes first. But see, we don't like that. We say, no, 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 let me know, and then I'll do. But it means the world to our Heavenly Father for us to say, Lord, I know you, and I know I can trust you. Um, I'll give you a good illustration. Um, I have a friend named Russ, Russ Korth, used to, years ago, do seminars at churches on Saturdays on knowing the will of God for your life. It was always packed out, because who wouldn't want to know the will of God for their life? So, and he was a good teacher. But he kept, he told me later, he kept hearing the same questions over and over and over and over and over and over and over at these weekend seminars. What about this? What about that? What I, I, I want to know first, and this and that. So finally, one Saturday, this is a true story, Rush shows up at the church, it's packed out, and he says, hey, before we begin this seminar today, I just want to ask you a question. I just want to see a show of hands. And here was his question. It's exactly what we've been talking about. He said, how many of you are here today and you've already committed inside your heart that whatever it is God's will turns out to be, I'm already committed to doing it? Even before I know it, I'm willing and surrendered to do it. How many of you would say? And about half the crowd would raise their hand. This particular Saturday, with a big grin on his face, he said, all right, seminar's over. And they all kind of leaned and said, what, what, what do you mean? We just started. You just asked us a question to kick it off. He said, reason I just said seminar's over is because of this. You that just raise your hand, you don't need this seminar because God's already said, I'm going to reveal it to you if you're committed to doing it. And you that didn't raise your hand, you're never going to know it anyway, so this seminar's not going to do you any good. <laughs> kind of stirred the pot a little bit, don't you think? Now, he went on with a seminar, but his point is well made. So I'm asking you tenderly, gently as a friend on the platform with a microphone on, how are you doing with that one? Would you say, I can honest to Pete say as I start this week, if I hear a prompting, I probably won't fully understand it, but I'm willing to do it. I'll go chat with that neighbor that I haven't even met yet, or whatever it is. It's scary, but that's the headlight principle. By the way, the reason I call it the headlight principle, it works just like the headlights on your car. You don't hop in your car at nighttime and say, now car, show me about a thousand feet up the road. I want to see that. The car said, no, I'm going to light about 50 to 100 feet. You've got to drive further down the road before you see further down the road. Am I right about this? So all I'm saying is, how you doing? How you doing with the headlight principle? Okay, let's do another one. The fourth principle I want to give you is what I'm going to call the wise men principle. The wise men principle. Now, you remember the story, that, remember we talked about last month, the wise men following the star in the east, going to find the baby Jesus or the child Jesus. Remember this? Okay. Do you remember? They didn't go straight there. 
they actually stopped first at the palace in Jerusalem and talked to King Herod. Now, Herod wasn't a godly man, but the point was they were seeking confirmation before they followed through completely on what they thought was the right thing to do. This is wise to do. There are going to be some moments you have a quiet prompting from the Lord, and it's just for you. But there's going to be many situations where God would expect you as a mature person to say, you know what, I'm going to consult with somebody that I, that I know to be mature and wise. I admire them, and I, I love their walk with God. I so respect them. I'm going to confirm with them. And what I found in my life is if I find someone like that and they go, you know what, that was the Lord. That was the Lord. You need to do that. It just puts me at ease. In fact, I would say consult with really, really good people, but Scripture too. You may not find a verse that says move to Colorado in April, but you'll see that it aligns with the nature of God, with the heart of God, the mind of God. So it's what you're sensing um, happening uh, that aligns with God or, or is it something way off? So that's the wise men. Both Scripture and mature believers will confirm your open doors. Okay. Let me do one more. The last principle I saved to last on purpose, I'm calling it the lover's principle. The lover's principle. Now, I don't know how many of you have been in love before. I'm hoping some of you that are married, you're still in love, but that's another seminar for another day. Um, haven't you ever noticed when you truly love someone and there's gr a great sense of emotional intimacy, okay? You'll do illogical things, and you will look different, and you'll do some things that other people will not understand. And is this right? Okay? I mean, you're dating somebody. Remember back in the days when you were dating somebody, and you go, somebody goes, are you serious? You drove three hours to spend 30 minutes with her, and then three hours back, you drove six hours, spent that. And you go, yeah, and I brought her flowers too, you know? And somebody might say, that doesn't sound very reasonable. You're right. I'm in love. True? Now, Love is illogical. It doesn't mean it's irrational or, you know, whatever. It's, in fact, love is an act of the will, I think. But it drives you to do stuff that the ordinary person that doesn't know your lover would say, I don't know. I don't understand. As it comes to you and I with God, I would say the more I listen to his voice, the more countercultural my lifestyle becomes. Other people don't quite understand me. Are you okay with that? Are you okay with not just blending in, but you stand out a little bit? And it's not because you're seeking attention. It's just that you're so in love with him. You go, I'm going to do some strange things. Pardon me, neighbor, you know? So, this is important. I have noticed that even in my marriage today, and I'm, I guess I'm going back to the same thing, Pam and I, uh, this, this, the, the quarantine has been really good for our marriage. It's been really wonderful because we had more time together. I'm usually traveling 10 times a month, and I wasn't traveling at all for a while. We really took advantage of cultivating our marriage, and it was wonderful. But we began to do stuff that we hadn't done since we were teenagers. I won't tell you what it was, but we, hadn't, we didn't do it until we, since we were teenagers. And I really believe that what it was was just a re-engagement in what I knew to be true all along. Whose voice are you hearing? Now, here's how I want to close. Two quick things before we stop. Um, since I've given you a lot of history today, I'm going to give you one more story from history. Way back in 1982, there was an NCAA Division I football game. Actually, it was a Big Ten football game for Big Ten fans out there between Michigan State and the University of Wisconsin. Do we have any state fans in here? 
Okay, a few of you. Yeah, I know this Wolverine territory. But um, the Spartans were taken on the University of Wisconsin, the Badgers, and that particular Saturday, Michigan State was just beaten up on Wisconsin. I mean, it was a lopsided game, lopsided sets of downs. It, it was not going well for, for Wisconsin. Hometown fans at first were a little bit, you know, it was kind of quiet. But then as the game went on, even though Wisconsin was in a fourth down and long situation, fans would just erupt in cheers. In fact, the broadcaster said, what, what are they cheering about, Bob? I, I don't see anything to cheer about down there on the field. And it happened two or three or four times until one of the broadcasters figured it out. This is such a fun story. One of the broadcasters said, I know what's happening. Not far from there, their Milwaukee Brewers were playing in the World Series against the St. Louis Cardinals. And several people, actually thousands, had brought their transistor radio to the ball game. They were tuned into a whole other game that day, folks. So while the stuff in front of them went too good, they're going, oh, we just scored a run. That was awesome. They were listening to another voice. What was going on in front of them was not very good. In fact, it was messy. Sound familiar? But while I'm not in denial of what's happening on that field, I'm tuned in to a whole other voice. I wish this, that we leave this building and this week as we just live our lives and go to the grocery and go to work and do all the things we do, people look at us and just see something different. And then we say, well, I'm tuned in to another voice. I'm not in denial, but I am in tune. So I want to read something as I close today. This is really simple, but um, as the year ended last month, I wrote a little poem, um, and I don't think it's brilliant. I'm not William Shakespeare, but um, I just called it, If It Weren't 2020. The year started well with our work and our money, our weather was warming and our spring became sunny. Our life was quite normal and our resources plenty. And it might have continued if it weren't 2020. As the spring unfolded, we got new direction. We were told to go home to avoid an infection. It was COVID-19 and it spread through the nations. No one knew how to stop it, causing loads of frustrations. Our economy tanked, tons of jobs were soon lost, and those that continued they came at great cost. All events were diminished. Our troubles were many. We all kept on wishing that it weren't 2020. And then there were protests on the streets of our cities. We saw police conduct that was not at all pretty. There were marches and signs and windows were shattered as folks sought for ways to say black lives mattered. And if that's not enough, we had an election that divided us more than the COVID infection. Both sides were fighting and motions soared like a comet. The political commercials made us all want to vomit. <laughs> Had to throw that in. At this point, I wondered just what God was doing. How could he allow all the angst we saw brewing? But then he just whispered to my mind that was dull. I'm using this year for a grand wake-up call. The COVID infection made us value our health. And we saw what we owned was actually wealth. It made us appreciate our relationships with friends as we witnessed folks mourn when lives came to an end. And the protests turned out to be helpful intrusions of our need to work harder 
at racial inclusion. Some think they divided our frail population, but in truth, we joined hands across our great nation. Although we were blindsided when we started this year, perhaps we woke up from our blindness and fear, and to think we could have missed these blessings of plenty if we'd all wished away this strange year, 2020. <clears throat> Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we leave this building today uh, with some pretty clear thoughts, at least I do. God, help me to hear you when you prompt me. Help to pay attention to the precepts that are already written down. And then, God, roll up that program and talk to me. And, Lord, we just collectively say we want to follow you. We want to follow you. Give us the courage, if it takes a little bit of a risk, to talk to a stranger or a neighbor or pray, some, pray for somebody that we normally wouldn't. We just ask for you to speak this year, and God, keep us wide awake over the course of 2021. We love you, God, and I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. Love you. Good to see you again.